the series in Second Chronicles 7. So let's go ahead and turn there. Second Chronicles chapter 7. I hope that this series has been uh, challenging you, stirring you, bringing fresh application in the area of prayer, uh, as it has for me. I know that this tends to be one of those subjects where pretty much any time you bring it up in your Christian life, uh, you realize that you're falling short. You realize that you're not after God, the way that He holds forth in the Scriptures for us to pursue Him, to seek Him, and to be uh, after His heart. So I know that I've been challenged tremendously by the last couple of weeks as, as Keith and Peter have unpacked sort of some of the phrases in this verse that's very familiar to us, but looking in depth at what it means to humble ourselves, looking in depth at what it means to pray. And this morning we're going to look at the next phrase, which is seek my face. So let's read this together in Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And if we were looking at the culture and we were talking together about some of the different characteristics of modern culture. 21st century America, if you would. America, specifically. We can look at a number of, from a number of different angles and sort of assess and describe characteristic themes, dominant themes in our culture, pursuits, things that are valued as important. I think one angle that we could look at that from would be that our culture has a preoccupation with aesthetics. Aesthetics meaning an appreciation for and a a sort of quest for beauty. I think that's something we can see all over the culture. Everything has to look a certain way. Even functional things like tires. Like tires, I don't know if you guys have noticed some of the recent tires that spin automatically forwards and backwards. I mean, very functional things all have to look just right. But even the culture, if you just watch the television and you take note of what is in demand in today's culture, television-wise, think about trading spaces. It's almost a cult following in trading spaces. Let me just get a show of hands of people who watch trading spaces. Yeah, it's all over the place. Trading spaces is a hit, and people love watching These designers run into houses and tear everything off the walls and empty the room completely, send the folks away, and then completely remap everything in the room. Sometimes they put stuff on the walls that has biological status still, like fungus and algae, and you've seen some of this stuff. And household names are Hildy and Laura and Doug and, and Genevieve. Lots of people in our in our day right now know those names. Because they're familiar with this show where we get to watch the before and the afters. And people go in and they change everything up. And then the the family comes back in and gets to see, wow, this was a boring, just white room. And now it's got all this color and splash and design. And all that stuff kind of rivets us. It gets us excited. But that's just level one. Because out of trading spaces grew a whole, whole other league of pursuing the quest for beauty. We can see it in what not to wear. 
where all the principles of aesthetics that are valued in, in trading spaces are moved from, from the ceiling and from the floor and the walls to people's shoulders and hips. And, and they, they literally tra- follow people around and film them and watch them. And they look at their wardrobes. And then they pounce on them and show them. And they, they show the videos of, we saw you going to work and that, it looked horrible. What were you thinking? And they just insult and chide this person. And then they burn their wardrobe and they start from scratch. They say, you're going to go and this time you're going to do it right. And even if you don't like those clothes, it's okay. Here's what you need to get. It has to do this and do that. And they apply all these same principles to our clothing. And then there's the surgical makeovers phenomenon that's going on. Where you're actually watching people go under the knife and... This is on television. You're watching people transforming before your eyes who are not satisfied with the way they look. And so they on television will will have their bodies reformed and configured and they'll pull this over and clip it off and push the bump down and burn something off the forehead and all this crazy stuff is going on. And, and there's a supply and demand thing going on in our culture. I mean, obviously the television is doing this stuff because they're getting responses. People are watching this. And what it's all about, fundamentally, I think, is the quest for beauty. We want to see the before and the after. We want to see the transformation that takes place when something goes from just blah to wow and see all of that that takes place. But that's not strange to the Bible. What I want us to consider this morning is that the Bible holds this forth as the ideal for the Christian life. That this quest for beauty is not something to be eschewed, not something to be shunned by Christians. As a matter of fact, far from negating the legitimacy of pursuing and of the quest for beauty, the Bible actually affirms it and exhorts us in this quest. I want us to look at the Psalms for a little while today. So we can go ahead and turn there to Psalm 1. Centuries ago, in the 16th century, the time of the Protestant Reformation, uh, the Reformers had this motto. And it was Coram Deo. And for them, Coram Deo was the essence of the Christian life. This is... This is was it encapsulated what it was to be a Christian. And what it means is before the face of God. What was in their minds as they thought the Christian life is about, Coram Deo, being before the face of God, was this idea of living our life before God's face, living under His eye, living with a view to His glory, living in the light of His favor, seeking His face and pursuing Him. And they saw this as the substance of biblical teaching on what we're to be about as Christians, as the people of God. They saw this really as God's highest aim for his people. God's highest value, what he wanted most deeply for us, is that we would live our lives before his face. But I want us to see that the Psalms are fraught with this kind of language. This isn't just something unique to 16th century teaching. They were interpreting the Bible. The Bible advances the idea that to live before the face of God is the essence of the Christian life. 
and the Psalms, which is the devotional manual of the whole Bible, where we get to walk with and hear these guys praying and almost have a wiretap and be in the fake furniture van outside and listen to what's going on as they're feasting on God and communing with Him and speaking and praying and asking for grace. And we find that throughout the Psalms is this language of seeking. Look at Psalm 1. At the very beginning of the book, we have a benediction. Listen to this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers. But his delight, note the words here, is in the law or the instruction of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So we see here again this this familiar setting next to each other of blessing and of curse, of the righteous and the wicked. And in those lines, as we look at that in the psalm, as it lays itself out, we find that the person who is blessed here is a man whose life is characterized by seeking God. He's meditating day and night. He sees this stream which which may represent a relationship with God or the presence of God or the life of God. And he plants his tree right next to it. He desires this closeness with God and he is blessed for it. And the person on the other side, the wicked, they forsake the Lord. They could care less about God. They're not seeking God. And so this is a familiar thing in Scripture where Jesus, for instance, says, Blessed is the man who does this, but woe to him who does this. So these blessing and cursing and blessings and woes are familiar to us in Scripture. But note the characteristics of this person in chapter 1 and 2, right at the outset of this book. And look in chapter 2 at the very end. Now, therefore, O kings, verse 10, Be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, turn back over to Second Chronicles just for a second. I want us to see that this is not just something that's unique to the Psalms. But it's also in the original passage that we were referencing. Second Chronicles 7.14 If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face, if they seek my face, and his response is to bless us, right? I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin. I will heal their land. Look in verse 19. But if you turn aside and forsake my statutes and my commandments that I have set before you, and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will pluck you up from my land that I have given you, and this house that I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. And so on. It goes from there and lists these blessings on the one hand that will be given to those who seek the face of God, and those who forsake God do not come into the favor of God, do not experience this joy of relating to God. 
Now, the Psalms, back to the Psalms, we're going to look and spend most of our time in some of this passage. In the Psalms, it doesn't just begin with the pronouncement of blessing on those who seek the face of God. Every one of the Psalms is replete with the language of seeking the face of God. There's not a, we could close our eyes and flip through the Psalms and put our finger down, and we would end up on a Psalm that finds a man seeking the face of God. Necessarily, explicitly, using language of seeking, saying things like, God, you are my God, earnestly I will seek you. We see men throughout the Psalms offering praise and thanksgiving to God, confessing and proclaiming the faithfulness of God and who he is and his attributes, asking God for help in their time of need, praying and confessing their sins to God. All of this is the language of seeking God. And it's throughout the Psalms. So in a very real sense, the largest book in the Bible is the manuscript of a God-seeker. That's what we see in every page of the Psalms. But I want us to look and drop down into a particular story in Psalm 71, where we hear the sounds of seeking. We're not going to read the whole passage. I just put in your notes some different things that are going on in this psalm. And we're going to review some of those together just to see what it sounds like for us to seek God. First, in Psalm 71, he expresses his need and he asks God for help. Look in verse 1 through 4. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. You have given the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. Verse 7 through 13, do the same thing, expressing need, asking God for help. It says, I have been as a portent to many, but you are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. For my enemies speak concerning me. Those who watch for my life consult together and say, God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him, for there's none to deliver him. Oh God, be not far from me. Oh my God, make haste to help me. May my accusers be put to shame and consumed with scorn and disgrace. Grace may they be covered who seek my hurt. That's not all that's here. He voices his confidence and trust in God. He recounts the faithfulness of God in this moment. Look at verse 5 and 6. For you, O Lord, are my hope. My trust, O Lord, from my youth. Upon you I have leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. As we saw later in verse 9, this is an old man. It's probably David, late in his life. And he's looking back on the faithfulness of God throughout his life. And in this moment of despair and distress and anxiety, he's calling out and he's reminding himself of who God has been in his life. And note how far back he goes. All the way before my mother's womb, I have been leaning on you. You have been my help. 
And in this moment, as he's seeking God and he's reminding himself, affirming the faithfulness of God, it's buttressing his faith as he seeks God. And then he proclaims who God is and who God has been. Look again in verse 3. Be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. You have given the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. You see the beginning and the end of that verse? He's saying, be to me, O God, be to me a rock of refuge. And at the end he's saying, for you are my refuge, you are my rock. He knows that the God that he is asking for blessing, for favor, for mercy, he knows that that God has given him mercy and is himself merciful. David knows God. And you can see that a revelation of God fires this whole experience that he's having as he's calling out to God. Look again to see the same thing in verse 17. Oh God, from my youth you have taught me and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, oh God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those who come. And now he just shoots straight vertical. Your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. You have done great things. O God, who is like you? You who have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again from the depths of the earth. You will bring me up again. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. So all of these statements of faith and who God is. And notice right after he says who God is and what he knows God's going to do for him. He says, I also will praise you. You're going to do this. I know you're going to do this because you've been faithful throughout my life. You're going to do this. And here's what I'm going to do. I will also praise you with the harp for your faithfulness. Oh, my God, I will sing praises to you with a lyre, O Holy One of Israel. And then he rejoices in God and worships with song. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you. My soul also, which you have redeemed. I want us to note something as we look at the sound of seeking in this psalm in particular. There's no clean break between the proclamations he's saying about God and the petitions that he's asking from God. It's weaved in and out of this whole dialogue that he's having in this moment. He's moving in and out of proclaiming who God is and how faithful God has been and into, oh God, be my rock of refuge. God, I need you. Do not forsake me when my strength is spent. This is all weaved into the sound of seeking. Seeking God is not merely asking. Seeking God is not merely proclaiming who He is. It's both. It's all of this rich language that we see here. I think the question for us this morning is, how do we get here? We want this. We want a rich experience of the goodness of God, of who He is. We want a fellowship with Him. We want to be like that tree planted right by the river of water. Constantly communing with God. We all want that, but how do we get it? It looks like when we read the psalm, sometimes it just come away and say, how come that happens to me so rarely? Why can't I dive into this experience? Can I know more in my relationship to seeking God and pursuing Him? I want us to talk at this point at the seeker-breeding promises of God. 
You know, whenever we talk about prayer or, or even sanctification, for that matter, we have to watch out for lurking bootstrap theology. Right? Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. The danger of that is this, that when we overemphasize our role, our responsibility, what we end up doing is undercutting the very primary motivation of the Bible. The way that God primarily motivates us as his children is not through threats, is not through commands and imperatives and firing down orders from heaven. The primary way that God leads us as his people and motivates us is not by saying, act out of sheer willpower. Get resolved, will you? Come on. You, you made a New Year's Eve resolution. You made that resolution. How come you're not sticking with it? Come on. Hop to it. God doesn't motivate us that way primarily. God motivates us wonderfully by promises, by a vision of who He is and what lies in that relationship of seeking His face. What will happen if we press on and seek Him. Charles Spurgeon says, The love of God is before our seeking. He draws us before we run after Him. We do not seek that love. That love seeks us. So one of the things I think we can get from David here is that seeking the face of God is not primarily about self-denial. It's not about the rigors of your resolution. It's not the cross that we bear. Seeking God for David was primarily about beholding, as he said, the beauty of the Lord. David wasn't driven by resolve. David was driven by a prospect of perfect beauty. He saw that around the corner. As he he was seeking the face of God, he knew what kinds of things God does for those who seek Him. This is what animated David. His life of seeking God's face. And we can get that if we look at Psalm 27, 4. It's a remarkable verse. So let me quote it to you and take it in. Think about this. Because we have a rare opportunity to ask one of the most godly men in the Bible, the man about whom it said he was a man after God's heart. What, David, of all the things that you could have, if you had to sacrifice everything in this life, in your experience, what would you keep? And David says, one thing have I desired of the Lord. That will I seek. And then he says what? To behold the beauty of the Lord. And to inquire in his temple. David was a seeker all the way to the bloodstream of his life. He wanted to see God. So he says in Psalm 26, Oh, how I have loved the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. David loved the house of God, the temple of God. He talked about the courts of the Lord. He loved that because he knew in the courts of God is a vision of the beauty of God. Glorious God is to be seen. Psalm 63. Listen to the language of seeking here. This is rich. Psalm 63, verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul 
thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there's no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. And he goes on and on. He's just on this string of what he knows is going to happen as he seeks the face of God. My soul will be satisfied. David knew the name of the whole seeking game. He knew how it worked. He knew how God responds to seekers. He knew about how the promises of God draw us out into seeking Him. He knew that. And so for David, encountering the glory of God and beholding the beauty of God was not an if. It was a when. He knew if I seek and I seek continually and I keep on seeking, eventually I will find. Eventually, I will taste, I will feast. And though there are these moments that we can look at in the Psalms where he is just in the pit of despair and seems to be talking to walls. Say, God, where are you? Where have you been in my moment of distress? You're going to leave me to die here? He calls out and we hear the angst of his heart. And yet, even in those moments, I believe that David heard in the back of his mind what saints have heard throughout history and has kept them on the trail pursuing God. That is God whispering, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. Scripture time and time again where God says to his people, you seek me, you will find me, you keep seeking all of your heart, keep coming after me, I will be found. John Piper says, it is crucial that we not be more fascinated, more gripped by the prayers of a man than by the pleasures of God. How easy it is to be more thrilled by radical devotion than by divine beauty. That's what David would say to us this morning. David, what is it that drives you? What makes you such a characteristic person who seeks after God? I think he would say... Well, it's beholding the beauty of the Lord that brings me back. It's knowing that the promise of God is not for me to have a once-in-a-lifetime experience. God holds out another prospect of beauty. God will show himself to me again and yet again and again throughout my life. And even when my days are almost over, I can cry and say, God, you will be my rock of refuge even now. The end of my life. Charles Spurgeon says this. Thou shalt find him if thou seek him. I wish I could sing and could extemporize a bit of music. For then I would stand here and sing those words. Thou shalt find him if thou seek him. At any rate, the words have sweet melody in them to my ear and heart. Thou shalt find him if thou seek him. I should like to whisper that sentence softly to the sick and to shout it to the busy. It ought to linger long in your memories and abide in your hearts. Thou shalt find him if thou seek him. What more do you want? 
It's a remarkable thing that God draws us by promises, that God draws us by, by wooing us into the prospect of beauty. A frequent verse that we quote is Hebrews 11.6. It says this, And without faith it is impossible to please Him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. You see the, the primary qualifiers for what God wants from people who would seek His face in this verse. As you seek my face, God is saying, I want you to know that I am real that I really do exist, that you're not just talking to the walls, you're not just speaking into the air. There's a God who really is there when you seek Him. No matter what it seems like or feels like, I am there. And I want you to know something else. As you seek Me, I will reward you. Isn't that wonderful? That's remarkable. That's the Gospel in the promises of God. That as we seek, He doesn't just tell us He's going to reward us. He wants us to know it as we're coming. As you're coming... Bear in mind, my people, I'm going to reward you when you get here. When you seek my face. Seek me is not an invitation to stoicism or self-inflicted misery. On the contrary, it's the only way to real joy. It's the only place where we can get a glimpse of perfect beauty here on this earth is when we seek God. The promises of God, therefore, are rightly considered to be seeker breeders. As we meditate on these rich promises that God gives us as His people, over the course of time, it will have the effect of drawing out our hearts and making us seekers. The promises of God are seeker makers, seeker breeders. John Owen says, Whoever hath an interest in any one promise hath an interest in them all. And in the fountain of Love from which they flow. He to whom any drop of their sweetness floweth may follow it up into the spring. Were we wise, each taste of mercy would lead us to the ocean of love. Have we any hold on a promise? We may get upon it and it will bring us to the main, Christ himself and the Spirit, and so into the bosom of the Father. It is our folly to abide upon a little, which is given us merely to make us press for more. We need the more of Christianity. Every one of us. Because our tendency is to grow complacent. Whatever it is that we're pursuing, our tendency is to grow cold and complacent, having experienced, having apprehended, and we assume that that's about all there is to this thing. God says, that's not all there is to me. I'm an infinite being. You can't exhaust me. You'll never exhaust me. Even in heaven, as we cry out and worship and behold Him, we'll never exhaust the infinite God. We'll probably worship for 10 million years just on mercy. Just Let's just take the category of mercy and stick it up there and we'll sing for thousands of years. And then... Love. And we still won't exalt mercy. We won't be done with mercy. We'll set it aside and say, okay, we'll pick mercy up in another million years. For now, let's sing about the love of God or the power of God. God cannot be exhausted. Charles Spurgeon says, it is plain that one of the blessings which we as a church should seek with all our hearts is that of continual increase. The entire church of God should look for the daily multiplication of the spiritual 
see. Ask God for more. Ask Him for more every day. Every chance you get. Even in the mundane moments of your day. Ask God. God, be more to me. God, show me more of who you are. God, give me more of an experience of your goodness and your grace. That should be the consistent and characteristic desire of all God-seekers. is to seek that God would be more to us. But don't just ask for desire. I think sometimes we settle into this, you know, at least I have a desire. And that's a good thing. Evidence of grace. God has given me a desire to want to do this. Pray the desire all the way through. Desire, biblically, doesn't just sit there. Desire always moves. Always. So in the Bible, desire is either moving upward toward God or downward toward sin. James, we see this, where, where you weren't tempted by God, you were tempted because your desires led you away. And, and when you fed those desires and you cultivated that, that brought forth sin. And sin, when it grew up, slayed you, brought forth death. So desire gone bad does that. But desire doesn't just go bad in Scripture. Desire cultivated, holy desire for God can have a transforming effect on us through the years of our relating to God. So that ten years from now, it's possible for every one of us in here to be deeper in the knowledge of God, to know more of Him, to desire all the more to seek and pursue Him, because that's desire gone aright. That's desire fed and cultivated by the promises of God and us responding to the promises of God. Anselm prayed through desire. Listen to how he does this. O Lord our God, grant us grace to desire thee with our whole heart. He doesn't stop there. He says, grant us grace to desire thee with our whole heart, that so desiring we may seek, and seeking find thee, and so finding thee may love thee, and loving thee may hate those sins from which thou hast redeemed us. You see, Anselm is taking that biblical concept of desire and praying it through. Not just desire. God, I want a desire for you, but that's just where I start wanting stuff. I want the desire, but I want what it can lead to. I want it to lead to a passion that fires my whole life and makes me a God seeker. So there is something to be said about devotion and responding to God and responding to His promises. But the devotion itself is not what's impressive. It's a vision of the beauty of what we're seeing. That's what draws us. That's what motivates us. So there are both sides. Divine beauty, but also the seeking response to behold the beauty of the Lord. We need both of them. We need to preserve Philippians 2.12 and 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. So we need the indicative and the imperative. We need for God to say, not only seek my face, but to put in our hearts what David responded when God said that to him. David said, Lord, when you said to me, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face I will seek. Something, had, the grace of God had started that going. David didn't just bootstrap himself up and say, I'm going to go and seek after God. That began with grace. Here we have to, as in many places, contend for the incipients of grace, for the origin of grace. That grace starts everything. Grace comes first. This is not the dilemma of the chicken and the egg, where we're wondering if, if we 
get God started and God reveals because we seek, or if God begins with grace, drawing out our hearts through his promises, drawing us out, and then as we seek, he reveals. And then there's this upward spiral of seeking and finding that takes place in our Christian life. We're not completely passive, though. We're called to respond. David's, David's psalms were not written in moments of passivity. David wasn't playing ping pong with one hand and writing the psalms with the other. David knew that there's a place. For David, there was a locale for seeking the face of God. He didn't just do it on his way from here to there. There was a holy moment that David was after. And he knew, and he had this place that he called the courts of God. The courts of the Most High. And he wanted to be there continually. And so David would come and would seek the face of God. And he would say, okay, here's our time, God. I want you to show me your glory. Reveal who you are to me. And in that revelation, appetite is stirred and we continue to seek his face. John Owen points to the connection between these two. He says, clear shining from God must be at the bottom of deep laboring with God. What is the reason that so many in our days set their hands to the plow and look back again? Begin to serve providence and great things but cannot finish? Give over in the heat of day? Here's the answer. They never had any such revelation of the mind of God upon their spirits. Such a discovery of His excellence as might serve for a bottom of such undertakings. No wonder David knew this. No wonder David said, God, make your face to shine upon your servant. Save me in your loving kindness. He wanted to see the face of God, to behold the beauty of God. And this drove him to seek God continually. Charles Spurgeon said, I want this morning to find out seekers and by the help of God's Holy Spirit to encourage them, to direct them, so that if possible, this may be the last morning in which they shall be called seekers and the first day in which they shall be finders and know how sweet it is to those who find him. Spurgeon here was talking about justification. The thing which we find once and never find again. We are declared by God, forgiven and pardoned. And that is found. And in a perfect sense of the word, we really are not continuing to seek the justification. God provides justification. But Spurgeon points to this turn between seeking and finding to where the more and more that we encounter God and He reveals Himself to us, the less we start thinking of it in terms of seeking and the more we start thinking of it in terms of finding. Because those who, as the promises say throughout the Scriptures, those who continually seek, continually what? Find. As we continually seek, we continually find. And eventually the finding eclipses the seeking. The seeking is just a means to an end. That when you're headed on a vacation somewhere, you don't, after that vacation, talk about the route there. You talk about the moment where you got to the place of your destiny. This is the finding aspect of the Christian life. Seeking and finding is the story of the Christian life, but those who continually seek, continually find. And eventually, I think we start thinking of life less in terms of seeking and more in terms of finding. Over and over again. Just a word about methods. We run the risk 
of looking to methods to produce success in our devotional life. I've done that time and time again, thinking that this next book or this next method of seeking God is going to be the silver bullet that makes me a God seeker endlessly. Methods can't replace revelation. Trust in methods leads only to frustration and failure. What we need the most is not the how-to of seeking. We need the revelation that serves as the bottom of our seeking. We need God to reveal himself to us. Let me illustrate that to you. If I wanted you to go to my favorite restaurant, and I just had a quick conversation with you, I had to go, you had to go, and I just had a couple of minutes to sell you on the idea of going to my favorite restaurant. There are two methods that we could do. One is I could spend 95% of the time telling you directions, specific where to turn left, where to turn right. And if you run into traffic or road construction, you can go down West Esplanade, you can turn left there. You can, I could give you alternate routes and practical hands-on ways to get to the restaurant. And then I could very quickly tell you about the food, the service, the setting, the atmosphere, very quickly. Or I could put you there. I could use and load my sentences with adjectives like dimly lit, violin player in the corner, uh, savory, succulent, tender, moist, finger looking good. <laughs> Eventually, I'd find some adjective that you would like and your eyes would beam and you'd say, OK, I got to go there. If it's finger looking good, I got to go there. I've had that before somewhere. That, I would appeal to you, is going to be the one that gets you to the restaurant. Because if all you have is alternate routes and directions and a, a blip, a sound bite on what's there and what the experience is like, if you run into any hindrances on the way there, you're just going to say, hey, forget going out to eat. I'm just going to go get PB&J at the house. You're not going to pursue through the hindrances and the obstacles and find your way there. Whereas if I sell you on it and, and you're licking your lips as I'm talking... Well, then even if my scribble on the napkin's not exactly right, you're going to stop and pull over and ask people, how, the name of the restaurant's this place, could you tell me how to get there? You're going to pursue the practicals. You're going to find a way to get there. The benefit of the second method, the reason why that one is better, is it goes deeper. It plays on the real urge that's at stake here. Because the drive that I'm trying to appeal to to get you to go there is not fundamentally the drive that involves your steering wheel and which way you turn and red lights and stop signals. The drive that I want to appeal to is your appetite because we're talking about a restaurant. But the same way with God, we can get so trapped in the nuts and bolts of how to and what to say and what not to say that we miss getting the primary thrust that God provides under those practicals. We need the thrust and the motivation and the appetite. We need God through his word to speak to our urge. The, the real world relevance of seeking God. All of this is crucial for our lives. This is not just something about an experience that you get to have when you pray. This is something that puts its arms on everything that we do in our lives. Every attitude, every role that you have in life, every place that you frequent. Everything in our lives gets touched by this. We saw last week in the diagram that, 
that prayer was central and everything else in the ministries of the church is affected by that. And in the same way, our lives. This is why the Reformers saw this as the central motif of Christianity. Before the face of God, living Corandeo is the stuff of biblical Christianity. That's what it's all about. That's the big idea. You want to know what the big idea is of Christianity? It's living before the face of God. Beholding His beauty. And it affects issues ranging the spectrum of human experience. Rejection. Boredom. Think about how all of these can be touched by beholding the beauty of God. Unforgiveness. Loss. Despair. Worldliness. Unbelief. Controlling habits. Anger. Insecurity. All of these constantly and progressively will be changing as we truly discover who God is. As we seek His face. Because as we seek God's face, we get a vision of how big He is. Something of His size. And ultimate reality begins to eclipse the things that take over our lives. I mean, we can get so fixed on the day-to-day circumstances of our lives to where we really believe with all our hearts that the ultimate reality of my life as a young student is, is getting friends around me and, and appeasing the enemies that I have and, and, and making good grades. And we really do believe and we're under the stress of that. And that becomes ultimate reality for us. And single moms have this ultimate reality where, where you see the suffering you're experiencing trying to raise your son or your daughter for the glory of God and doing it all by yourself and feeling lonely and feeling forsaken and having those moments where your soul trembles and you need God and you know, God, this is, this is my world. It's right here. It all fits right there. This is my issue. That's ultimate reality. And God says, you come and seek my face. I'll show you what's ultimate reality. Ultimate reality. I'm not negating the seriousness of your pain and your issue. I'm saying there's something infinitely larger. Something that really can encompass the experience of suffering and travail that we get about in our lives. And God shows us what ultimate reality is. Ultimate reality is the majestic, glorious God who provides strength when we need strength. In times of weakness, He gives grace He's, as the scripture says, a very present help in time of trouble. Those become the ultimate realities. Not the trouble itself, but the one who provides strength in times of trouble. Let me just read to you 1 Chronicles 10.11. It's an exhortation. It's found in the Psalms as well. It says this, Glory in His holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His face continually. Let's pray. Oh God, show us that You are worth seeking. God, show us that You are bigger than we've ever imagined. Lord, draw us in by the prospect of beauty. Lord, may we not any longer feel like our prayer life is sustaining itself 
and is living day by day only on the sheer willpower of our resolve. God, give us drive. Give us thrust. Give us fuel to get to the courts of the Lord and get there often. And to be near to You and to know that Your nearness is our good. Lord, and in those moments, would You give us such a revelation that even if for weeks after that, even if we feel like there's nothing but silence, that we will have in our hearts and in our minds the whispering of Your Word that says, I will be found by You again. I will reveal Myself again. Keep coming. Sustain us, Lord, in this as we desire to seek You with all of our hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen. Can I make a quick suggestion for you guys? Uh, I thought Matt's exhortation and word was excellent for us. Uh, it's a way of life. It, and it really does require some rewiring of how we think about our motivations in Christianity. This book is available in the book nook. It's called Pleasures Evermore. The Life-Changing Power of Enjoying God by Sam Storms. I highly recommend it. As a matter of fact, if, if you buy a copy and you read the first two chapters this week and you are not affected by it, bring it back. And we'll give you your money back. I guarantee you the first two chapters will be worth the price you pay for the book. Okay, so strong recommendation. You guys have a great, awesome week pursuing God.